Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. A big comeback, managing your losses and moral victories all wrapped up into one as the Canucks wrap up a seven-game homestand drancer. It uh, didn't go the way they wanted from a win-loss standpoint, but they did manage to entertain us and they did manage to get a point as they now head on the road for a couple of games. And we are delighted to welcome all the VIPs back to the VanCast. Drancer, just what would you make of last night's game? Because if you ask me, on form... This might have been the Canucks' best performance of the season, if not the best result that they could have got. I think it was early. I think it was early, their best performance. I didn't love the third period. I thought the third period was poor, frankly. Like, I just didn't think they generated enough, considering that they were trailing. I thought they took too many penalties. Uh, Yeah, I thought the officiating was trash garbage. We got to get into that trip, Oh, no question. But, yeah, but I didn't... You know, I, as much as you could say, like, that was a really good game for the team, and it was, I didn't think the third period was great. I didn't think the lotto line was great. And I think you're seeing some things, like, for example, the lotto line is not right, right? The lotto line is not quite there. Um, they still, you know, the I mean, they were fine. PD gets the goal. PD sets up the Bo Horvat breakaway three on three. Like, I'm not sort of throwing stones so much as I'm pointing out that relative to what the other forward lines were generating, like that Bo Horvat line was shooting fireballs. Uh, Pod Colson and Garland just shift after heavy shift. Uh, Garland in particular was magic throughout much of the game, right? I mean, he had a couple of those offensive zone shifts in the first period where, I mean, he, he, he's an elite player. Like, he's an elite player at this point. It's, it's really fun to watch. And then the lotto line, you know, they were fine. They, they were fine. They they weren't the, their usual dominant imperious self. They were more this season version, which is, you know, the Canucks' third best forward line. And and one thing that is happening as a result of that, like there are knock-on effects from the lotto line struggling still, even though the Canucks now have two tops, top nine lines going or, you know, top three lines going. And, and one of them is that clearly they're not comfortable splitting JT Miller and Elias Pettersson. And as a result of that, when they're trailing yesterday, you see Bo Horvat flop lines. And all of a sudden, he's playing with Pod Colson and Garland to give the Canucks a more offensive-oriented second line, while Dickinson goes down to play with Hoaglander and Pearson. And, and that makes sense, except for the fact that, actually, that Pearson-Hoaglander-Horvat line is your best line right now. Like, that's your best line. They, they shouldn't be separated. So... But but usually you could rotate like Miller and Pedersen through with Garland and Pod, Pod Colson. But I just don't think they're comfortable double shifting those guys or even asking more of them right now than what they're giving them on the lotto line just because that line's not clicking. They need more from that line. They just need to focus like focus on what you do. Don't do the extra. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't love that. And I thought it showed like I didn't think the club generated nearly as much in the last 20 as they did in the first 40. Um, you know, I, I just sort of looked at the third period and thought, this isn't great. And then, of course, Pedersen scores a, a brilliant goal. Um, I loved how they just, he just played around the guy who'd lost his stick, right? Just like there was a ruthlessness to that goal and that shot and that finish um, that looked like old Petey. So, you know, maybe, maybe we're, I keep looking at that line playing and being like, oh, I see signs of progress. I see, I, you know, uh, yeah, that's, I see that's something me. there. Yeah, well, yeah, look, it's look just, for it's, me, I, I looked at it and, I, and even looking at the numbers after in terms of their shot share and in terms of percentage of scoring chances, um, it was a step. And, and talking to those guys after the game or listening to those guys after the game, um, they felt like they're starting to figure it out collectively. And maybe that's just talk. I mean, Lord knows we listened to Henrik Sedin tell us how good their performance was after they were complete trash night after night. So we know that <laughs> sometimes players go on autopilot, but even... 
you know, the most honest guy in the world sometimes goes on autopilot. So even Travis Green talked about, you know, how he thinks they're they're headed in the right direction and they're trending a certain way. So I, I saw a step in the fact that they've been producing, that we've got Pedersen having scored in the last couple of games. And look, we've talked about it. I've been as critical as anybody of Pedersen in terms of just saying, yeah, yeah, he'll figure it out. I haven't necessarily bought into that as, as, as fast as maybe you have or others have that have looked at it a little more critically. And, um, it, you know, and for me, I just saw a, a little more, to quote Thomas Drance, a little more there there last night. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't, progress isn't enough. Like, I want to see this team, I want to see the first line of this team play as well as the Horvat line. Like, I want to see them control play. I want to see them be part of the fight, continue momentum. I don't want to see them be fine, but not quite as good as Garland, Pod, the Buck Garland, Pod Colson line, and not quite as good as that Horvat line. Like, you know, and, that, and that's, the, that's where they're at. Like, that's where they're at. I just didn't think they were great. I really didn't. And at some point, we got to stop side-eyeing them and saying, hey, progress. Hey, like, I've, I've said very little more. of that. You know that, uh, you know, and, and I know. I know you have. I know you have. I'm not calling you out. Yeah. I'm, I'm calling myself out more than anything. Like, well, you, I, you know, you've gone body. so far as saying, I'm, I'm done with them. I don't want to see them play anymore. Like play I, together, I, I mean. Well, yeah, and they've made enough progress in the last three, four games that, you know, I, I have a little more time for it, especially because the other lines are working so much, are working so well. Right, like I'd be reluctant to split them at this point, more because of what Garland and Pod Colson are doing together, and more because Pearson Horvat Hoaglander is like now, you know, like has given this team an identity again. At least they have one line that can control play at the top of the lineup. So I, you know, I'm I'm probably going to back off my split them up take, but it's not because I think what they've done is so impressive. It's because I don't think the top nine, like the other lines, shouldn't be shouldn't be tinkered with so you know I just at some point I know for myself like I, I can't be like I can't look and and hang my hat on nor can this team hang their hat on like progress that it needs to they need this they need to get it done like they need to get it done they need to control play better they need to limit the chances they're giving up and you know once you factor in quality like I, you know, I thought they were fine like I didn't think they were great and until they are like that really fundamentally limits the ceiling of what this team can accomplish this year. Pedersen for his goal said, you know, he fanned on the shot, felt lucky uh, that, that it wound up going in. But, you know, with goals in back-to-back games now, I mean, that could be enough. He wasn't getting much luck before. He wasn't generating much, you know, whether it be statistically or analytically or through the eye test, there was a lot missing. But the fact that he scored in back-to-back games, you know, think about his first goal, which went off the end boards and, and uh, in week one of the season or game one of the season and, and bounced in off the goaltender. Um, these last two goals might give him a little bit of confidence and might make him squeeze the stick a little bit less as they head back on the road. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, he, he needed something like that. And, and you know, I really liked, like, my favorite play by far was the back check that he's used to spring Horvat for that breakaway, right? Like there was, uh, you know, that, that that's what I like to see where PD's sort of thinking in ahead of the game and, you know, makes it disciplined at both ends, creating offense from defense. Like when he's on, I notice that part of his game all the time. And, and you know, you're, you are noticing it more. But again, uh, you know, that line wasn't, this wasn't for me a, like a breakthrough performance for the water line. It was fine. Um, they were good, you know, and, and, I mean, that's that's sort of an issue. Like, this was another game, too, where, um, you know, I, I thought Quinn Hughes, Tyler Myers, and Oliver ekman Larson played well, right? Which which is great. Like, yay, good for them. Um, <laughs> but, like, you know, I didn't I didn't love Tucker Pullman or Kyle Burroughs' games particularly, right? I, I, I thought Hamannick looked good, but they're about to lose Hamannick. And now, you know, we go back to, like, I don't know. We go back, they go back on the road. They're facing two sleeping giants in, in Vegas and Colorado, teams that are far better than their records. And then they're facing the Ducks again 22 hours after puck drop in Vegas. Like it's a brutal schedule for them on that last leg. And, you know, it feels, feels like a pretty big week for this team, right? Like you can't, you can't do, you kind of need four points from this trip after the way you scuffled through this homestand. Um, and, and just like, as I'm getting, as I'm sort of looking through 
all of it, right? Like, as I'm trying to keep my mind on the big picture, it's like, yeah, I, I liked how they played against Anaheim on the whole. I loved how they came out. Like, I loved the first period. I liked how they played overall. Um, you know, it it had the feeling, right? It felt to me like an early season, um, like one of those early season games where teams figured it out, but the results don't necessarily manage yet. Or like, ma- uh, sorry, match their work yet or like or like their quality yet felt like one of those like pre breakthrough games almost. So, you know, that's the positive take on it. But the other side of it is they put themselves so far behind the eight ball. I, I, I don't think this defense is good enough. The first line is not close. Like for me, they're not close to being at the level they need to be. And so you've created a situation where you've just got very little margin for error, not just on this road trip, although this road trip seems really important now, but like beyond, like, you know, this team needs to reel off something ridiculous. They need to reel off something like, you know, uh, 15 wins in 20, something like that. Um, just to just to position themselves to withstand the inevitable charge that's coming from Vegas to keep up with an LA Kings team that I think is actually legitimate. Like they're really good. I, I think the Kings are really good. Um, I think a late charge will come from Seattle once their goaltending gets figured out. So, you know, how do you, how do you, they have to get back in that mix. Uh, it's not going to be easy with the quality that this team's icing. Canucks, with their last four games, were 2-1-1. One, and one. I think they might have been the better team in all four and were able to get some points, but that 0-3 start leaves them with a 2-4-1 homestand. Not good enough. The last game was good, as we talked about. 80-46 to 46 shots attempted. Uh, it's been a while since the Canucks have attempted 80 shots in a game and, and looked that good, but they're going to need to carry it forward, no question. You mentioned... Travis Hamanick. So before we get deeper, let's let's go there because he's not going to be on this road trip. Uh, Travis Green confirmed as much after the game, said Tyler Mott is going to be on the trip, but that Hamanick isn't, uh, you know, given all the speculation around his vaccination status and, you know, just what he said early on uh, when he first got back. We obviously know this is the reason. And at some point he'll be past that. But for this trip, not there yet. Um, well, I, I don't think it's just this trip. Well, how long? Well, timeline wise, timeline wise, sure. I, I, I think I think it'll be a partial of next trip too. So, um, you know, I, I mean, yeah, he's gonna he's gonna miss a fair few games over the over the balance here um, uh, this month, and then we'll and then we'll sort of see where we're at. I, I thought he played really well last night. Like, I really liked his game. I, I actually think the Canucks have been and need to continue to ramp up his minutes. Um, you know, just because for me it's pretty apparent that he can bring more than Tucker Pullman and, you know, Burroughs and Shen. And like, he's the best of that group beneath Myers, OEL and, and Quinn Hughes and, and by some measure. So, uh, you know, I, I just think they need him. And now you're going to wind up with Shen now week to week. The club has said that injury is a little more serious than they thought. I still don't understand for the life of me while Kyle Burroughs is playing ahead of Jack Rathbone, but you have to believe Jack Rathbone is going to get called up to be on this trip yeah. so that they've got additional defensemen waiting. And he has been. And he got called up. He got called up this morning. And Brad Hunt uh, should get some time. I mean, I like I would have loved to have seen him play ahead of Burroughs on at least one of these last two games. I don't quite get it. But um, yeah, how do they manage that bottom pair? Because however you play them, you are really going to reduce their minutes. Well, you know, I, I, I don't think they have a bottom pair. I think they have, and I said this on broadcast last night, but I don't think they have a bottom pair. I think they have a bottom three. I think they've got three top four defensemen, and Tyler Myers is playing with both of their top pair or their top four right lefties uh, a fair bit, and his ice time is wildly disproportionate with three other players who are all playing about you know, 10 to 13 minutes. They're all playing bottom pair minutes, right? Hamannick, Burroughs, and um, and Pullman all played third pair minutes, basically, um, yesterday against the Ducks. And then the other three play a ton. And that's because the club was chasing, right? They, they want Myers out there with Hughes sometimes when they're chasing the game, when they're looking to, when they're looking to generate offense. But they did the same thing against Dallas. They did the same thing against Dallas. So, you know, Myers is clearly the righty they trust the most. The righty they see as a, as a credible top four guy. Um, you know, maybe Hamannick gets there as he ramps up, as he becomes a more consistent fixture in the lineup. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't think I don't think they have two top four righties. I mean, it's not just like the depth issues. It's not just, 
that they need Rathbone on the third pair. It's not just that they need another lefty who can kill penalties for the penalty kill. Like it's also that they don't have enough top four right-handed defensemen and are trying to build one in the aggregate with Tyler Myers, which to this point has worked because Myers played well, but boy, counting on Myers to that extent, uh, does that sound like a winning recipe to you long-term for No chance. Like eventually it's going to regress because there, there no just, is, there just yeah. is a volatility to his game that is, is apparent, right? Like we know. I mean, for sure there is. And, you know, but but full credit to him, right? Like, there's nothing about the performance of Vancouver's defense right now that suggests to me that they're making the wrong decision, right? And in my mind's eye, do I think that Tyler Myers is the most credible top four guy among Vancouver's other right-handed options? Like, for sure I do, right? So, you know, I'm not quibbling with it, I'm, or at least I'm not quibbling with the decision-making I'm so much as I'm quibbling with the construction. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We got to get into this save or sorry, not this save, the penalty, the penalty. Oh my goodness. Like what were they thinking on that particular call? I guess the referee admitted as much to Travis green that they got it wrong, but that was embarrassing on so many levels. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was a phantom trip. Uh, Getzlaff spoke post game and and I went and listened in because I wanted to hear his comments on Murray. And, uh, you know, I asked him because once the conversation turned back to the game, uh, I asked him, you know, he, he seemed to be laughing after the penalty. And he said that he skated by Yara Halak and Halak made a joke about it. <laughs> and then he was chuckling at a joke Halak made. But then Halak was, didn't speak post-game, so we, I, I didn't get a chance to clarify what the joke was. Or not that he would have said it, but at least we would have uh, got his reaction on it. Um, yeah, I mean, he didn't touch him. It was a terrible call. Uh, I thought there were a, a, a couple dubious ones. Um, the Canucks have benefited on the whole from officiating, but I didn't think that was a strong game from Brad Meyer and and I don't remember who the other referee was, but you know, so it goes. That 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 phantom trip though was pretty incredible. Like I was uh it wasn't close to him. It wasn't close. At what point does the league get a little more involved in stuff like this to review some of this stuff? I mean, the other leagues are kind of moving ahead. Yes, the NHL still uses replay as it relates to goals. We saw that with Anaheim's second goal. Yeah, we did. You know, we, we got a we got a break, uh, you know, what was it, three at least three minutes later where they, they sent in the horn and they wound up looking at it and it was a goal and the Canucks got some time back on the clock, which they needed because, you know, they needed two goals at that point and they were able to get them to send the game into overtime. And even on the last horrific call, the Canucks still wound up scoring a shorthanded goal on that particular penalty. Um but when does the league start getting more involved? You're seeing this even in the NFL where, you know, they, they've got a, a, a you know, um, uh, eye in the sky that just will d- differentiate between offsides and procedures and, and other calls, whether it was an incomplete pass or whatever. They'll get into it before a, a coach actually has to use a review. I mean, even the CFL for its lack of budget knows that it matters and they do it. When does the NHL get ahead of this or just, yeah, they, you know, the old hockey guys are not going to make, you know, change. Well, they have to make some changes. I mean, the, it's not good enough to throw up a embattled commissioner and his embattled deputy commissioner to smugly shrug off the fact that the officiating in the game is fine when it clearly has no credibility among anyone who watches it regularly, right? Like, and it's not just a bad call. Like, a bad call like that is a mistake, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, Brad Meyer would own that. I'm, I'm sure... Right, and he, and he did a to, to reporter. Yeah, but he, and he did to Travis Green. Oh, did he? Well, Green said that afterwards, right? That Brad came up to him and and kind of acknowledged that he got it wrong. Right. Okay. I, I didn't quite. I wasn't quite wise to that, even though I asked Green the question. Yeah, it was um, your question. 
Yeah. Okay. I, I guess I wasn't listening. But, to but to your I was to your to hear, point in the other I was leagues, to hear pyrotechnic anger. I know. <laughs> but but to your point, the other leagues generally will make an official available to a pool reporter to explain a call if it really needs explaining. Yeah. Or they put out a statement, right? So it's like you know the one the one thing that I thought about there was like it, that's a situation where you wish the referee because once you see it on replay, there's no doubt. You know, and it played in building. And I'm sure Brad Meyer looked up and like Brad Meyer is not a referee that I think, uh, you know, that I have like a negative uh, impression of. Like, I don't look and see Brad Meyer's refereeing a game and sort of roll my eyes. There's a few referees that I do do that for. Right. Like Kelly Sutherland. Right. Like yeah. there's um, but but Brad Meyer's not one of those guys. Like, I think he's a pretty good referee. I watched him a ton in the bubble. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just too bad that he can't put his hand up and be like, my bad. You know what I mean? Like that would change everyone's perspective on it. And the league's way behind on basic transparency. I think that fuels the credibility issue. We all know that the makeup call thing is like a big problem, right? The rule book's not called or it's called selectively based on the leverage of games and then differently again in the playoffs. And, um, you know, that that's a huge issue too, especially in a world where gambling matters. Like, uh, you know, the uh, NHL officiating is just another area. And I know we'll talk about this a little bit later where, where like the real world, right? Real world credibility, uh, real world growth, uh, the growth of gambling, the need for people to, to have faith that the game is going to be called, that the rule book's going to be called if you're, if you're going to expand the sport to new people. Um, you know, that's sort of knocking on the door of the NHL. And the NHL is, again, NHL leadership uh, has never shown that they're capable of handling that. So well, when I, you look I mean, at their a, response, a ton of problems. when you look at their response on the gambling issue, they weren't willing to acknowledge that the injury reports matter. Oh, I know. Right. So right. I, uh, I don't know. Yeah. How, I don't know how this is going to change. Yeah. But I mean, basic transparency in terms of uh, the availability of, any, of of officials, that's basically an industry standard now, one that the NHL for no reason has lagged behind. Um, that's amateur hour. Like that's, that's Bush league at this point, frankly. I mean, I mean, there's no need to beat around the bush. And then, you know, I mean, in terms of in terms of the other credibility issue, for me, the mistake sucks like that sucks. Obviously, you never want to see it. Um, I don't know that you you should be reviewing every minor penalty. I mean, I, I think video review slows the game down too much as it is. I'm not a huge proponent of it. Um, like I hate offside review. I hate offside review so much because sometimes it's like the entry happened 30 seconds before the goal. Like it had nothing to do with the play. You know, it takes forever. Um, anyway, the the thing that I sort of, I, I don't think more video review is the answer, um, but I do think there's a wider credibility issue that sort of ex- is exposed. So like a normal mistake, right? Like a totally understandable can happen mistake in a fast moving sport, a bang, bang play like the one that um, was missed on Tuesday night in Vancouver, you know, sort of becomes a window into a wider set of, problems that the league is facing, which mostly pertain to the lack of credibility uh, that the league itself has to police the rule book itself. And and that that sucks. Like that's where the league's at, just not getting or their officials anyway, don't get the benefit of the doubt from any attentive fan base. Um, you know, is that a problem that should be addressed or is it a media construction? I mean, uh, the NHL has always said the latter. We saw Tim Peel last year, right? I mean, the mm-hmm. fact that that happened, that was the first, you know, genie out of the bottle moment and the NHL in its infinite wisdom just decides to stuff it back in, right? Like they, it didn't cause any change. They just said, look, uh, this was a, a one-off and, you know, we're, we're they justified it on a number of different levels, but didn't make it, they weren't willing to acknowledge this as an issue, right? And and to me- yeah, like we all know, and we all know it was. Of course it, it is. Of course it, it was. So I, the fact is, is that when that happened and, and they basically got caught with their hand in the cookie jar and they weren't willing to acknowledge it, they weren't willing to make change on any level, um, you know, then you're going to get these moments that just continue, right? I mean, you, like I said, yeah. it, it could be simple enough to just says, okay, you've got to, you've got to talk about it. You got to explain it. Yeah. Call, call the rule book, call the rule book and have a, a, a thin patina of post game transparency whether in the form of a, of a release or a report like the NBA does or a pool reporter able to talk to officials like the NFL does, you know, do, do what every other league does, man. Like, you know, <laughs> there's a reason that every other league does it. The, the fact that the NHL doesn't, you know, is, is too bad and, and puts Brad Meyer in a tough spot 
in the wake of a of an error, like just a human error, and again, an understandable one. Um, you know, uh, last night. So that's sort of that's sort of my view of it. It's just I hate that we have to filter everything right now through the wider lens that is that NHL officiating doesn't have credibility among those that watch the game. Uh, it's it's an unfortunate state of affairs and and one that actually could be addressed, you know, with a with an ounce of leadership and and you know that's the type of thing that the NHL tends to struggle with. Um, you know, <laughs> not not good at that side of it. We were talking about this just because of the the trip on Halak. Halak himself had a pretty good game, a third start for the Canucks, and it seems like um he's giving them what they need in those spots. And he'll get another shot here with back-to-back games coming up as well in the road yeah, trip. I play, played well, has had no run support. Um, too bad, you know, uh, but yeah, he's played. I mean, I think he's played well for the most part. Uh, he's, he had a dicey moment. They hit the post on one of their first shots. Uh, didn't mm-hmm. love the first goal against Uh second goal is just bad luck, but yeah, I mean, he made some stops. He made the stops he had to, he outperformed uh, his expected goals. Like, yeah, n- nothing to complain about. Yara Halak's been a really good backup. Um, by all indications, a pro, despite not playing a ton either, right? Like, has been just a good guy, and, um, you know, he's he's Yarrow Hawk. He's one of the most consistent puck stoppers of the last decade, <laughs> and he and he doesn't look like he's gotten old. Uh, he looks like he's able to bounce back from, you know, a pretty miserable season last year in Boston. Uh, he's He's been everything the Canucks could have wanted especially at his price point. Where the Canucks need to be a little bit better. And, you know, we, when we talk about the special teams part of it, I mean, we've touched oh, on the face-off issue. We've touched yeah. on the face-off issue. It's an issue. I mean, you look last night, <laughs> Bo, Horvat, Bo Horvat was amazing. But the fact that Bo Horvat had to take 30 of 46 face-offs is a problem. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a really big problem. Um, not having a righty for the penalty kill is a huge problem. Try, trying to have Bo Horvat quick shift off the PK, which the Canucks are now doing on every defensive zone draw four and five, or at least were last night. Um, you know, that's tough. Like, that's really tough, especially especially in a second period. I look at this team, right, and I think this team probably is not, like, they haven't done, shown me enough to change my view that they're probably not a playoff team, right? And And part of it is roster construction, right? Um, I do think there's an increasing understanding or recognition internally, right? That the club may need to look externally to address a couple of key flaws here. And and right-handed shot, who can win draws, I think is chief among them. Um, lefty third-pair guy who can kill penalties, I think is up there too. Uh, those are things this club needs. Like the, they are, they are. It just, it's it's really simple. It, it, it's, it's killing them. It's killing them right now. It's killing them on the PK. I just don't, I don't even think they have the personnel to be better than a bottom five NHL penalty kill. And, and clearly we're at throw whatever, whatever sticks against the wall, like, you know, throw darts at the board, just like, see if you can hit something because the PK cannot be much worse. Like it's the worst in the NHL and it hasn't been unlucky. It hasn't been like better than that. It actually has gotten what it deserves. And what it deserves is what sixty ish percent. Like they they allowed one, they killed they killed two of three last night. Is that right? Or two of four? One of four. Uh, Sorry, they killed four. three of four. Three of four. Yeah, one of four yeah. goals. Yeah. So one of four goals, and uh, and like that seventy five percent effectiveness is a huge upgrade over what they'd done in the season to that point. Like nine goals against on fourteen chances. That's wild. That's wild. And it hasn't been goaltending. Like it hasn't. Yeah, it just it, it's a it's um it's the type of problem that can sink an entire season. And I don't I don't know how they address it internally. Like, I don't think they have the people to do it. I don't think they have the people to fix it right now. No, they don't. And, and when Brandon Sutter comes back, that'll give him a bit of an upgrade there. There's no doubt. Right. And they're going to have to put him in the lineup wherever just because it's, it's necessary. Mott will make them better in terms of just how they're structured, but he's not going to necessarily be a face off guy for them. And, you know, you look at uh, Jason Dickinson in, in this game and, um, you know, two for four, you look at JT Miller and he's three for five and, uh, and Elias Pettersson, who er, who's obviously not in the PK, but earlier in the season, they were trying to get him more draws, just took two draws last night. Right. So, um, it, it's a problem. I mean, it, when you look at the minutes it's led to for Bo Horvat, 26, 11, this early in the season, he had to play in this game and they only took four penalties. Imagine if they had taken seven or eight and gotten into real penalty killing trouble. Uh, you know, he, he was, 
just barely behind Quinn Hughes for ice time in this game. I know. Uh, and, and he played so well. Like Bo Horvat throwing fireballs, right? Um, you know, as I look through, and, and we've talked a lot about the team struggles, but I think we do need to note, like, one thing one thing that sort of gives me some, you know, pause in, in my overall, like, take that this Canucks team hasn't shown me anything to change my view that they're not a playoff team, right? Which is true, and I, and I stand behind, beside it, or stand behind it. Um, but I want to note, too, like, Garland Pod Colson, like having a third line capable of doing what that line appears to be capable of doing on a relatively consistent basis based on this homestand, um, that's a that's a game changer for this team. Like that's the type of threat, bottom six threat, that they haven't had uh, maybe ever. Maybe like maybe ever. Um certainly in a decade plus. They haven't had that. Uh, that's a huge development. Horvat, Pearson, Hoaglander, I think that's a, a legit line. I actually think they need to play together more. Like, I, I would like to see them stay together late in games when the leverage amps up, even if the Canucks are down, despite the fact that Pod Colson and Garland are more offensively calibrated. Um, you know, I like that line I, a lot, a lot. I really like that line. And then you've got the Miller, PD Besser group. And look, if they can start chugging into gear at any point, that top nine is going to be problematic for opponents. Like that's going to give them a shot to go on the type of run they need. And, and you know, that's a big takeaway from this homestand for me too, is like the rise of the Canucks third line and the Horvat line becoming a consistent force. Those are huge developments and may, may be sort of the first signs of a, of a more meaningful team level breakout. But if it's going to happen, the penalty kill can't be a disaster. It can be bad. It can be shaky. It just can't be a complete smoldering crater. And that's what it is at the moment. Yeah, I mean, they dominated the first period and bam, they're down one nothing because of a penalty. And it yeah. was it's it's tough. I mean, once again, they give up the first goal. Pod Colson, 13-47 on the ice, got some late shifts when the Canucks were still down a goal before that penalty when they were looking to tie things up. He's trying to beat people. Uh, three shot attempts, one hit, but just... Trending in the right direction. Even Travis Green talked about it after the game, talking about how he's come a long way, maybe looked out of place at times early, he thought, but really put in the work to become a better player, kind of understood the areas where he needed to be better. Quickness has improved since day one, says he's become a better player in the last 10 games for sure. Doesn't think his confidence ever wavered, but, um, you know, says there was even a point early on when he called him in at one point and said there was a game he felt he needed to play more in and that he was wrong by not playing him more, but it certainly happened as well as and as fast as they could have expected. No question. I, I mean, it's not anymore about Vasily Podkolzin earning trust. He's earned it, right? Like he's earned it. He's a top nine forward for this team now. It's just about maintaining it. And, and you know, for me, it's not just the speed or the feet themselves that, that seem to be improved. I think he's he looks faster because he's more comfortable. I think he's already recognizing patterns at this level. I also think he's adjusted his game to complement Connor Garland more effectively than some far more veteran players were able to over the course of the early part of the season. Pretty impressive, right? Like that's a pretty that's a pretty impressive feat to have accomplished as a twenty year old man uh, in this league. No, I mean Pod Colson's good. Like Pod Colson's a really really good player. Um, that's a and a huge find, like a huge bit of found money. But like Hoaglander was last year, you know. It's great to have these guys on ELCs, but you need to you need to be able to win. Like if Pod Colson is just this level of player, if if he never even improves from this, but he's a top nine, like a middle six forward who plays 14 minutes a night, plays heavy, and can score goals for you and complement skilled players, he's a four million dollar piece, Farhan. Like just that. <laughs> just what he's already the level he's already reached. It's worth four million wow. a year on the market. Yeah, think about that. <clears throat> you know, like that's huge surplus value. You gotta make it count. Yeah, no question. And it's tough right now because Jason Dickinson hasn't found his game yet. And when they first put Horvat on that line with Garland and Pod Colson, I thought, hey, maybe they're listening to Drancer from Monday's pod where he talked about taking Pedersen, Miller and Horvat and rolling them through that line to get them more minutes, but also to really give that that third pairing of wingers a bit more of an offensive bent. But really, it was Dickinson then going on to the second line, which didn't necessarily work well for them. So... 
he's got to find his game. I think we we knew that there wasn't much offense there when they got him, but that if he was put in a different role, he there might be more there where he can give a little bit. It's going to start with his face-offs as I see it, but if he can just play to what he was like a year ago, I think their middle six can really be solidified because right now on form, he's playing like a fourth liner, not a third liner. Yeah, I mean, I kind of disagree a little bit. Like, I, I, or at least I, I disagree with the nuance here, Farhan, because for me, Dickinson's played well in terms of limiting what opponents are generating against the Canucks when he's on the ice better than any other Canucks player, which is why I like the acquisition. Like, at five on five, Dickinson's a rangy, assertive defensive player, super responsible, and teams don't generate anything when he's on the ice. And that's been true. Like, he's been the Canucks forward for whom opponents have generated the fewest chances against the fewest number of expected goals against or expected goals at the lowest rate against like he they, has need, been, they need him winning more face-offs and they need him on the PK well for sure he hasn't been the answer on the PK but I mean I, I kind of didn't think he would be you know like I didn't think he would be I thought he was I think he's better suited to being the winger on the PK I remember writing that when he was acquired um I, I but in terms of like his defensive impact is definitely third line level. Uh, his offensive game is not right, but on balance, I think he's a you know he's a good low end third line forward who is spectacular in terms of his defensive impacts and versatile enough to play wing or, or center. You know that that's sort of how I saw the acquisition. But you know the Canucks talked about untapped offensive potential, right? They obviously, based on who else they brought in, right, didn't think they needed more than Dickinson to solved their power play issues. They saw him as a, as a, or as penalty kill issues. They they saw him as a signature penalty killer. Uh, and I don't think he is. So, you know, Dickinson's probably not living up to some of the preseason expectations for him, but I think he's living up to my preseason expectations, if that makes sense. Like I, I kind of think he has played his game and I think he has been effective. It's just that what he's being asked to do might not be what he's capable of doing as like a signature third line piece who's also going to win draws, something he's never really done, and be a signature sort of linchpin on the PK. I think he can be a bit player on a really good PK. If he's the first winger over the boards, you're in you're in a good spot. If he's the first center over the boards, you're not. Um, I don't think any of that is surprising. Like, I feel like that matches everything I would have expected. In the wake of the trade, a trade which I still think was a pretty good move. Yeah, the trade was good, but this, the the number he's getting from a salary standpoint, you probably expect a little more from. Really? 2-6? I don't know. I mean, I'll pay 2-6 for a bottom six player with uh, incredible defensive impacts. Like, that works for me. But, you know, that's just my view of it. I I, I mean, I, I see what you're saying. I, I don't think you're, like, wrong. I, I do think that you're sort of... um expectations for Dickinson probably more closely mirror the organizations. I just don't know that expecting Dickinson to be something like to have changed his spots was was sort of reasonable, right? Uh, fair enough. If they could just get some face-offs out of him, they'd probably be significantly farther ahead. We'll see where that goes. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we do want to get into some league issues, including what is going on in Anaheim with the team that just beat the Canucks when the VanCast returns. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. So Bob Murray has been placed on leave and the NHL and the organization are going to conduct an investigation into basically the workplace environment that Bob Murray has created. How many GMs are nervous around the NHL right now? Oh, man. I mean, so many, so many general managers, right, sort of run fiefdoms, as it were, and and are seen internally is unaccountable. And I thought it was interesting that Emily Kaplan of ESPN reported that, you know, partly in the wake of the Blackhawks um, issue, right? Staffers felt like, hey, maybe this isn't tolerable anymore. Maybe, maybe there's a, maybe there's a standard of professional decorum in the NHL that um, 
you know, is, is expected everywhere else in every other workplace and every other corporate culture in the world, um, but hasn't necessarily applied to the league. And, you know, maybe, maybe that's not acceptable. And, you know, Kaplan's reporting suggested that this was a big part of what, you know, came down on Bob Murray. What, what, what was the inciting incident behind an investigation that has seen him, uh, be put on leave based on initial findings? Um, you know, good, good. Like so many, how many NHL general managers are, are a little worried, like are a little nervous today? I, I bet a lot, like a lot. Um, this is not, you know, from my experience, right? From my experience, from what I've seen, from the people I talk to, like I, I do think that the NHL can be a really rough place to work um, in terms of the professional standard that leaders within team structures and team environments uh, are held to and, and what's expected of them. Um, and that's, uh, you know, I have no problem with that. I, I don't think that's, I think that's a good thing to come to the league, like basic, basic corporate responsibility, basic professional decorum should be an expectation within team environments. Uh, you know, I, frankly, I think the absence of it contributes to an awful lot of bad things, an awful lot of like hockey culture winning, put winning first mumbo jumbo that causes people to make bad decisions, make immoral decisions. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's a, again, it's a good thing that the outside world is knocking on hockey's door right now. Um, how well positioned is hockey to cope with that? You know, I asked both Ryan Getzlaff and Travis Green that yesterday, um, you know, and, and they sort of gave me like hockey answers, like hockey guy answers. Um, so we'll see. I mean, that <laughs> so true. That to me is the big question. Well, when you know when you look at it, uh, like, look, you lived it, right? You were in Florida for three years, and uh, you know, I, I I don't know Dale Talon, the the um, overseer of an organization, right? I mean, you know, we, I I knew him and talked to him from time to time, but it's a person from that same era and ilk and background as a guy like Bob Murray, right? So, you know, how difficult is it for a person that grew up in a hockey on ice environment to then transition into management, which implies you have the ability to organize and oversee, uh, you know, and you talk about it comparing it to regular corporate structure as opposed to, um, you know, a, a team that's got a, you know, VP of hockey operations and a VP mm -hmm. of business operations, uh, you know, and they, they kind of divide those responsibilities, but just, you know, how difficult is that when you've got a hockey person, you know, and we, we kind of mockingly use the term old hockey man all the time. Um, how difficult is that for that person to transition and, and adjust? And, you know, that's really what, that's really the people that are running hockey teams right now. I know. Well, I, I actually don't think it's that hard. Like, I don't think it's that hard if the environment is good and you're put in a position to learn and collaborate um, in a dynamic environment where, you know, basic corporate responsibility and skills and, and values are prized. Like, you know, hockey players are I, typically in my experience, like, you know, not always the most educated guys ha having not all gone to, to university, but like, you know, I worked, for example, with with some guys who transitioned uh, while I was there to to executive ranks, including guys like Sean Thornton, right? And and one thing about hockey players is when you um, go through a career sublimating your individuality in pursuit of a team goal, it does create sort of a singular type of focus and an, and an emphasis on collaboration that I actually think gives you a really good baseline to be an effective executive. Right. Like, I, you know, I actually think hockey players enter post playing careers with a with a big, big advantage in terms of, you know, some of the skill set, you know, not not a ton different, actually, from army officers of, of whom I've worked with with several as executives. I, I think there's a singular focus um, that both sort of bring because of the, you know, very goal oriented environment that they cut their teeth in that actually can serve them well. Uh, what I think sort of is the problem more than anything is that people become a product of the environment themselves, right? Like people become a product of the environment that they've seen. And for so long, you know, for so long, so many um, NHL teams have, have conducted business or, or done business or, or done things the old way and, you know, have been combative and, you know, hostile, uh, not open-minded. Um, you know, homogenous in terms of the amount of people 
making key decisions in the room where it happens, like at the table, right? Like if it's a bunch of old guys who all have the same background making decisions, like, yeah, you know, guess, guess what? Like more unacceptable jokes are made, right? More locker room talk permeates decision-making, um, a, a singular sort of type of thinking reigns. There's no need to be, um, conscious and cognizant and tolerant in your presentation and language. Um, you know, if, if everyone thinks like, oh, this is how it's done. This is how it's always been done. The, the boys on the bus mentality to a corporate structure, like guess what happens? Like it's not rocket science, right? And so, you know, a, a change to that, I think is important. I, I really do. I think a change to that is important. Uh, if the league is going to make those changes, it includes being more accepting of outsider views uh, it includes diversifying front office ranks significantly. Um, you know, I think a lot of good things are the solution to, to, um, to you know, sort of, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say it's a problem because I don't know how widespread it is, but certainly no one's surprised to see or hear that an NHL general manager of Bob Murray's ilk, um, you know, was conducting themselves in this manner. Um, I, I mean... Yeah, I, I think change is coming to this this league. It feels like change is happening really, really fast. Like the ground is shifting around the NHL really fast over the past six weeks. I don't know anyone who can look at it and not welcome it unless you're in power yourself <laughs> and, you know, and nervous because you've been a jackass. Uh, so that that's sort of my basic takeaway on it. Yeah, and when I look at Gary Bettman and and Bill Daly, I, I think they're as nervous as anybody, right? I mean, they they want to make this all into one off situations and don't want to take cultural responsibility for where this league is at. Hopefully, that changes sooner than later. You talk about cultural responsibility and the Wayne, just the Wayne Gretzky's of passing the buck in the NHL front yeah, office. Right? Yeah. Another thing that was pretty disappointing yesterday was listening to our friend Sat Shaw from Sportsnet 650 and and just what he and Bick Nassar had to deal with in the postgame show and Ugh. some racism that was still out there. Like, you know, obviously I'm a little invested when it comes to this particular issue. And, and look, if you know me, Drancer, you'll know that I'm not a race guy, right? And even though I was... Um, you know, very passionate about some of the stuff that happened with the Black Lives Matter movement and not necessarily them as an organization, but just the stuff that was happening in the United States uh, a summer ago and, and you know, what we hoped to had been a, a, an, an awakening, which I don't know that it necessarily was, but from my own personal standpoint, um, I haven't been that guy. Right. I haven't been a guy that's experienced a lot of racism in my 53 years. Like I could count on one hand the amount of times I've felt it. Like I can remember a day like it was yesterday when I was about seven or eight years old. And the reason I can remember it is because of how infrequently it happened to me. Right. Right. So I feel, I feel fortunate that, that that is the case. But the fact that those guys had to deal with that last night, and I've been in this industry for 27 years, like, that's just disgusting and really unfortunate on so many levels that Canuck fans, you know, a couple of days after we just celebrated Diwali and, and the fact that this organization has embraced from First Nations to the Asian community to the, uh, the you know, the South Asian community, and you can say that's all marketing or, or something that's been forced upon them, but I think that there's a genuine uh, affection and, and care for it within the organization just disappointing that fans are still living this. Well, and I, I like to think that there's a genuine affection and care for it within the fan base. I mean, you know, like, I, I think everyone gets hyped up to see Scott Rhodes celebrating a Canucks win. You know what I mean? Like, I 100%. think. 100%. And, you know, I've been to every rink in this league. You know, there's not a lot of buildings, right, where you go to a hockey game and the fan base attending looks like the city in which the game is being played, unfortunately, right? Like in Vancouver, it does. In Vancouver, it does. Uh, maybe Washington, D.C., but like there's, you know, there's not a lot. And in Vancouver, it does. And, and I mean, that diversity, that vibrancy is so key to what makes, you know, supporting, following, covering this team special, right? Like, you know, the, the, the Diwali, the Diwali night and the jerseys and the reaction to that. I mean, that is marketing, but I do think it's also reflective of, you know, something real about this team, which is that, you know, the South, South Asian community in particular has embraced it. 
um, in, in a way that I think is meaningful for all Canucks fans. Like, it has become meaningful for all Canucks fans over the years. I, I don't think there's any question about that. Um, if you're not a fan who can appreciate and take pride in that and understand that it's, it's actually a crucial distinguishing mark that makes being a Canucks fan, like, cool as hell, that makes covering this team and talking about it fun. Like, you're, you know, I, I honestly, I mean, not only is it unacceptable, but I actually feel bad for you. Like I feel bad for those people because they're just, they're just whiffing so significantly on what it is to be a fan of this team. Is it something the organization should make a public statement about? Yeah. I mean, you're the I, PR guy. Yeah. Well, I don't see the downside to it. I mean, it's, it's your rights holder broadcast. It's your post game. Um, you know, I, I would personally, I would, I, I think so. I mean, the, the, what's the downside? What's the downside to coming out against that and supporting some people who cover your team? And, um, yeah, I mean, why, why wouldn't you let it at, like for sure, for sure. And, you know, I mean, Bick and Bick and Sat are, are my teammates these days and they're the best. Like Sat's the best. Um, I, I know him really well. Bick, I don't know quite as well, but I, I've really enjoyed working with him, getting to know him. They're, they're consummate pros. They work so hard. Like Bick was hosting a midday show and then he's doing the post game show. They work so hard. They know their stuff. If you listen to Bick Nazar on the radio, like his, the level of detail in his hockey knowledge is through the roof. Absolutely through the roof. Sat might be the most plugged in team reporter at the moment, period, period. And, and I say that through gritted teeth as a competitive person, <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, like th- those guys deserve so much better than that. They're they're phenomenal people, phenomenal professionals, uh, despicable men. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully it changes and they don't have to experience it as much after Sat kind of called somebody out. I mean, I don't know that he necessarily put it on air in terms of a name specifically, but um, I'm, I'm glad he, he did, you know. Though. Yeah, I am too. I am too because he's he's. I find him to be like me in that regard that he doesn't want to go there, right? Like nobody wants to play victim. Nobody wants to create their own um, barriers, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, you you want to just live in a world where you believe that you're just being judged for your ability, right? You you want to believe that. And so, you know, I I can see why he wouldn't want to go there. But then eventually the fact that he got pushed to go there means this wasn't a one-off incident. No. So... Hopefully it changes pretty soon and that some people can get out in all of this. But uh, hey, listen, um, we've enjoyed the week. We got a bit of a, we've got a bit of a break here before we do our next VanCast next week after the Canucks have played a few more games here with their three-game road trip. So a lot more to digest on the lotto line. We'll see if you come around. We'll see what happens on the back end without Travis Hamanick. Uh, this should be a very, very interesting road trip, and I look forward to talking about it. Yeah, likewise, man. Be well. Uh, fun to chat. <laughs> Good episode, bud. Quinn Hughes. It's been the guest of uh, Craig Custance and Sean Gentilly this week on the Athletic Hockey Show. Rob Pizzo from CBC Sports has the Athletic Hockey Show with Sarah Sivian and Jesse Granger from The Athletic. Their guest this week was Julian McKenzie. As far as us, thanks for listening to the VanCast. If you're listening to this show, please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to leave a rating and a review. Subscribe to The Athletic Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. To get all that bonus content from the entire network, start with a 30-day free trial and then just 99 cents a month after that. Right now, you can get annual subscriptions to The Athletic for just $3.99 a month when you visit theathletic.com slash the vancast. Mike Martinego, you do not get the special promo code when the vancast no, returns no, on no, Monday. No benefits for Mike Martinego until he stops posting puke guy at all my funny jokes. <laughs>